So today's reading, two of them. First one is in Isaiah. And if you're somebody who's looking for a, a pew Bible or a pew, we don't have pews anymore. <laughs> a chair Bible. It's on page 573. It's Isaiah 9, um, starting in verse 8. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And then another reading. In Luke, pretty familiar. Luke 2, starting in verse 8, page 857, if you're using a Bible here. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. We're going to start in Luke 2. If you want to go ahead and turn there. We're continuing with the, um, the Advent series of the Christmas effect, looking at peace. Today we'll be in Luke 2. And Luke here, in his letter to Theophilus, is uh, working really hard to show to Theophilus that Jesus is the promised Messiah that was talked about in much of the Old Testament. In fact, through, we would say, the whole of the Old Testament, sometimes in very clear ways, other times in not-so-clear ways. And as a result, in the first couple chapters, we have a couple of allusions or direct quotations from the Old Testament prophets. And the two passages that J.P. read for us, one from here in Luke 2 and then also from Isaiah, uh, they're connected. And actually, if you look in your Bible, if you have a Bible that has cross-references in it, if you look at Luke 2, um, you'll notice in verse 14, in front of peace, I have a little cross-reference that takes me to a couple different areas. And one of those areas is Isaiah 9, verse 6, where Jesus is talked about as the Prince of Peace. Of course, we would know that 
back in Isaiah 9. It's not known that it's Jesus as of yet. It's somewhat veiled, difficult to see, but the truth is there. And it may seem a little bit of a stretch to look at this section here in Luke 2 and think, well, that's a clear reference back to what happens in Isaiah. So what I thought I'd do is just show you that Luke is working, working hard to try to make for Theophilus uh, a, a case that Jesus is the promised Messiah. There's no doubt about what all the prophets have been talking about are being fulfilled in the day that Theophilus is in or really be in, in history behind it. So for this first part, uh, you don't need to do much else just besides maybe sit back, fold your hands, and uh, take a look at, at uh, these two areas of text. One's always going to be Luke, and the other's going to be various places in the Old Testament. So here we have the beginning of Luke in verse 17, and the angel is talking to Zechariah, and he's talking about uh, what's going to take place and uh, what his son John is going to be or who he's going to be. And you can see there from the parts that are in bold and underlined, this is a very, very clear reference to what's talked about in Malachi in 5, this forerunner who's going to come before. And so if you were an Israelite in the first century and you heard about a forerunner, you would think of the person who's going to be before the Messiah. And so this would be for Theophilus, a little reminder of what was talked about in the Old Testament. And this one's pretty straightforward. We get a little less clear here with the next one in verses 32 and 33. This connects back with the Second uh, Samuel narrative or the Samuel narrative concerning David. And here we have the talk of the Davidic covenant. God promises that he will raise up an offspring. And so you see talk of the father David that shows up in Luke 1. And you can also see that the throne will be established and the kingdom will continue. And so you see there's going to be someone reigning in Luke 1. The house of Jacob goes even further back. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So again, not as clear as the last one, but certainly a connection there. We get a little less clear with the third one in Luke 1, 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. This is still talking about uh, John. And then we see in Malachi 3, which if you recall, the first passage was Malachi 5. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. So the breadcrumbs are still there. Admittedly, they're smaller, but no doubt they're still there. Luke is still working. Here's another one. Includes um, Luke 1.79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our way to the path of peace. There you see the first a bit of peace that Luke talks about. And then in Isaiah 42, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And all of the chunk of Isaiah, which is about 40 to 48, deals with this servant who failed, that is Israel, and the servant who would come who would succeed, which is Jesus. And there's lots of talking about um, those who are blind but have eyes, those who are deaf who do not hear. So anytime you hear Jesus talking about that, he's actually referencing this part of Isaiah. The connection is still there. You can see how it is. Admittedly, it's, a, it's veiled. We call this an illusion. It's not a direct quotation. We have two more. One is Luke 2. Just a place, a little bit of geography, Bethlehem. 
And of course, many people would have thought, well, nothing good comes out of this region. There's no prophet that arises out of Bethlehem. And Micah 5.2, again, a Micah passage, talks about how Bethlehem, Ephrathah is actually an important place. And the reason there's an Ephrathah there is it just refers to a, a different Bethlehem than another one. I'd be like Oregon and Oregon. We just changed the pronunciation and we've got it figured out. Okay, that takes us to our text. So here are the two of them together. Luke 2, 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. And then again, that passage 179, peace at the end. And then we see that this child is going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So in my mind, it's pretty clear there's no doubt this is a connection to some type of Old Testament something. We can at least agree there's something going on here that Luke is trying to talk about. And why is this character, Jesus, who was born as a baby, why is he bringing peace to the people? Why do the angels show up and say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased? Well, time for a little bit of a history lesson. Again, you don't need to write any of this down. Just, just sit and, and, uh, and take it in. So, in the, the grand meta-narrative of the Bible, it's just a fancy way of saying the big picture, the big story of the Bible, there are four main parts. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And every one of the books of the Bible fits in and contributes a little bit. You might find a book here that doesn't quite make sense in its context, but when you back up and you see the larger context, you go, okay, that helps me understand this piece or this dynamic. And so in the larger story of the Bible, much of the Old Testament is devoted to, as you all know, the time from fall to redemption. Very, very little takes place before fall, approximately three chapters. And then afterwards, it's just all leading up to this moment of redemption and then stops about 400 or so years beforehand. And when we have this big view in place before us, it helps us to understand why peace and a prince of peace would have been such a wonderful thing to the people living in this day, in this era. And I think that the peace, just summarized well, has two benefits, an internal peace and then an external peace. And the first peace would relate to what's going on around them, the social environment, the political environment, the temporal life that they were living in, you know, the, the fact that they're human beings, they need to eat, they need to sleep, and they have relationships, and they need a government and someone to rule them. In Isaiah, we're going to go there next. Um, if you want, you can go ahead and jump there, but we're getting into the middle of a book, and I thought, well, let's give you a, a help because you probably don't have an outline of Isaiah memorized. I know I certainly don't because it just jumps back and forth and back and forth. But in the first five chapters, there's this back and forth between old Israel that's going to be judged and new Israel and what it's going to look like. And then the call of Isaiah, which most of us are familiar with, shows up in chapter 6. There is the, uh, the confrontation of King Ahaz, who kind of stands as a representative for the people Israel. You have to remember Isaiah is written around the time of uh, the divided kingdom when things were pretty chaotic and, and not going so well. And then you see there in chapter 8, Assyria comes, which is the judgment that God said would come if the people Israel did not obey. And finally, then in 9, we see the promise of a Messiah character. And just 
here's a, a rough outline, or timeline, I mean, that gives you a good idea, and I'm going to zoom in on this small chunk here. Look at the Exodus and Promised Land. Just imagine living in a time period when you were walking through everything that happened with Moses and the plagues in Egypt. You walked through the parted Red Sea, <laughs> all the chaos at Mount Sinai, both good and bad. You're in the wilderness for 40 years. You go into the land, the conquest with Joshua, and lots of bad things happen and lots of good things happen. Judges takes place, kind of the, the low of Israel's timeline. You're thinking, okay, we're, we're just improving from here, right? Well, moderately. Then we get into this period of about a 40-year chunk for each one of the kings that you see. So, negate Samuel, he's the prophet, but for Saul and David and Solomon, each of these men has about 40-ish years to rule. Some of them do a good job, others do a bad job, but all of them are flawed individuals and they create chaos all around them. Imagine what peace would be like in that context. You'd be well aware that there is no peace. So then you think, okay, well, it can't get worse. We're, we're getting pretty bad. Well, it can. Then a young man shows up and says, I, I think I know better than my elders, and there's a divided kingdom, and all of a sudden now, First and Second Kings and First and Second Samuel, it's just back and forth. Good king, bad king, bad king, bad king, good king, bad king, bad king. It's just over and over. It's like a record, and there's more bad than there is good. Peace in the outer context would have been such help and hope to these people. And as we'll see, they were promised this in many, many different ways, and it never arrived. It didn't come to them. So that's the first. There would be this outer peace. The second would be the inner peace, uh, a spiritual peace or uh, an eternal peace. Oftentimes, the Bible uses physical examples to help us understand spiritual realities or dynamics. And this is where when you step back and you look at the larger story of the Bible, you see that there are physical things that took place that reveal spiritual dynamics. So we just got done walking through some biblical theology a couple months back, and we looked at the idea or the concept of dwelling. And we see that God progressively dwelled closer and closer with His people physically, and that reflected that one day He would come spiritually and dwell within them. And there are lots of experiences that are like that. The book of Judges we've already referenced would be a good example of what everybody does when their heart is not right. They just do what's right in their own eyes. And so we see a number of years, hundreds of years, that physically describe a spiritual reality when people are left. So that's how I'm going to handle this this morning. I'm going to deal with these two bits of peace, an outer peace and then an inner peace. Well, few observations for you since we're talking about time that's not current, but a past time. Let's talk about something a little more relevant. I've got a, relevant. I've got a, a, f- a few examples for you. Uh, this is the motto of the Apollo 11 flight. The motto of the Apollo 11 flight was, we come in peace for all mankind. This motto was on the plaque, which was deposited on the face of the moon, and the landing was on the Sea of Tranquility. So lovely when it's with its name. Armstrong and Aldrin found a tranquil and peaceful scene on the moon. Catch 22. There had never been any humans on the moon to disturb the peace. A little irony there for you. How about this one? Since 1919, the nations of Europe have signed more than 200 
treaties of peace. Each treaty, simply another scrap of paper, was broken far more easily than it was consummated. 200 treaties in just one small area. Only 8% of the time since the beginning of recorded history has the world been entirely at peace under 200 years. And that's only because there were people groups that were too far away from one another to war. We know if they were closer, they would be fighting. Or because we could go back further, but maybe there wasn't written record to illustrate that. One more. From the year 1500 B.C. to A.D. 1860, more than 8,000 treaties of peace meant to remain in force forever were concluded. The average time they remained in force was only two years. Peace. So let's talk about peace, a definition for you. Peace comes from the Old Testament Hebrew word which means, or that you hear that is shalom, and it means wholeness or well-being or completeness or prosperity. It is more than the absence of hostility, and it is more than a psychological state. So it's not merely inner, and it's not only outer, and it's not just no bad stuff. It's actually no bad stuff and lots and lots and lots of good stuff. This is the peace that this Messiah was bringing to the people and why the angels in Luke 2 would say, peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased and why Isaiah would say, he's the prince of peace. So let's deal with this outer first and you'll differentiate between the two by that little icon that you see on each screen. So outer peace. Let's look at six examples of why this outer peace would have been so magnificent to the people living in first century Palestine. Well, first, they would have an equitable and fair leader. There's a text for you, Isaiah 2.4. He will judge between the nations and will decide disputes for many peoples, and they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation neither shall they learn war anymore. And this is talking about a future day. But think about the people living in Israel and all the chaos that they had gone through. What a promise of peace from the form or in the form of an equitable and fair leader would bring to them. And we feel this today, don't we? We feel it in our political system. We feel it in our work environments. We feel it in our home environments. When the leader is not fair and equitable. We know chaos is soon to follow. And so one of the reasons he's called the Prince of Peace is because he, as the divine ruler, would bring profound peace to these people. This is what was promised. They would become stationary. Uh, We have moved a number of times in our marriage. Praise God, the last seven years we've been in one place, but if you would have talked to us seven years ago, the number of years that we had moved would have been greater than the number of years that we would have been married, and it was almost in the double digits, uh, at least the number of years that we'd been married. Now, some of those moves were just from one apartment to the next, but there's a lot to destroy your peace when you're constantly on the move, and they wouldn't be there anymore on the move. This is from Leviticus 26. Our next three examples are all going to be from here. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and you do them, 
Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest. Think about that. Think about being in a place long enough so you could, you could get the crops that you planted early in the year. It probably means that you had a pretty good handle on how those crops work, which, mean, which means you've been doing that for a couple seasons and you'd figured out the weather patterns. I mean, this would be something significant for people who are constantly on the move or in a place that was so arid that God had to provide the food for them. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been able to survive. And the grape harvest will last to the time for sowing, and you will eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. No issues with um, having to try to build a wall like in Nehemiah, holding a sword in one hand and a brick in the other. No problems of worrying about wild beasts coming and invading where you were or the next people group coming over. No fear of giants in the land, just stationary at peace. Their daily needs would be met, again, from the same text. If you walk in my statutes, your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest. I'm not going to read the whole thing again, but we're inferring from here that their food and their water and their clothing and their shelter were taken care of. And they had a long history of not having even those simple things. And you and I probably, I would say more than any other time in history, we have a really hard time understanding what this is like. Uh, Most of us go out on a day-to-day basis and we earn money to buy food. And some of us have a hard time earning enough money to buy the food. But we don't go out and work to get our food, which is an entirely different situation to be in, especially when you're planning for winter that's coming and is only a couple of months or weeks or days away, whatever it might be. And God is promising to them peace. Again, not just that they would have a little, but that there would be an abundance for them. They wouldn't be at odds in their relationships. You saw it in there, I'll remove harmful beasts from the land and the sword shall not go through your land. So he's going to take away these sources of conflict and they're going to dwell securely and their relationships will be easy. Anybody have a stressful relationship right now? It's kind of human existence, isn't it? As soon as we get a handle on one, another one crops up and then we have five to worry about and then the holidays come and all of a sudden we're thrown back into the fire with our family members or we have issues with work because things get busier around a certain time of year and it's constantly relational problems and God promises through his Messiah, this Prince of Peace, peace in relationships. I'm sure if we were to take a survey, there would be people in here that are suffering from a broken heart, a deep frustration over somebody else in their life, uh, deep hurt over things that are going on. Relationally, we're just always at odds and this Messiah brings relational peace. And not just on that level, but even further out, no conflict with neighbors. This group of people here isn't at war with that group of people there. Peace in all of that is what the Messiah brings. Life pleasures. You know, tied to this idea that you and I don't have to work for our food, and we have such an abundance in this era that we live in, we get to spend so much 
time on excess, don't we? In some ways, it's a good thing. In some ways, it's a bad thing. Just like anything in life, there are good and bads. Look at this passage from Deuteronomy 16. This is what God was telling to them as he's giving them the law, is his desire for them. Okay, so think, I'm a person who's been on the move, and life has been difficult, and God is talking about what's going to come. For seven days you will keep the feast of the Lord your God, the place that the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your own hands, all the work of your hands, so you will be altogether joyful. Now this is in the law, and right before this, in Exodus, Deuteronomy 16, sorry, there's another feast that they're told to keep. And on top of that, there's another feast that they're told to keep. And these feasts are all to be a week long. And think about if you're the type of person or people group that's been struggling, that your God says to you, you will have so much that three weeks of the year, you're just going to be able to kick back and relax, eat food, celebrate. I mean, imagine trying to celebrate if you're actively worried about people breaking down the door of your house or if you're worried about wild animals coming in through the windows that are non-existent in your home. It would be difficult to sit back and relax and celebrate. And God is saying, when you follow me, this is what it will look like. I'll have so much that I'll have provided for you that you'll be able to do that multiple times a year. When you're coming from waking up every day and going out and grabbing whatever manna has gathered and eating that for the day and then waking up and doing the next. Oh, on top of that, then you're going to have one of those days every single week when you just take a break, you relax, and you chill. The pleasures of life would have been something that they didn't have. Uh, oftentimes when you hear about war, when you read a novel about it or watch a documentary, they will often talk about this dynamic of how hard it is for people who live in war to enjoy the simple pleasures of life, and that can be something that wears people down so significantly. All right, the sixth way externally that he would bring peace, and there are far more than these. These are just the ones I grabbed. Long life. Deuteronomy 6, this is in the Shema. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son, and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes, all the days, oh, and his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. And we are now in a time when, since we have so much excess we're able to conduct studies on people and we're able to find out that something as simple as stress can reduce the years of our lives. It can produce heart disease. It can complicate whatever physical ailments that we have. It can bring about things that we otherwise would never have. And so just imagine that if you didn't live now, the average age of life before the 19th century would have been so much less than it is now almost half, I think, I'm struggling with my memory here, but it really wasn't all that long that people lived. And in part, it wasn't just because we didn't have good medicine, it's just because life was stressful and hard, and stress takes a toll on our bodies. This is why sometimes we look at people who are the same age, and one of them looks 20 years older than the other. A lot of times that can be because of stress. Living a stressful life is hard, and so God is saying to these people, when you follow me externally, life is less stressful. He provides this peace for them in the external. Well, how about we go to this inner peace? Well, like I talked about, the Bible often uses 
words and ideas in the physical realm to communicate the spiritual realm. And the New Testament writers talk about this. Paul uses words like shadow and copy, and so does the writer of the book of Hebrews. And all of these external means of peace or what peace would produce reflect in some way, shape, or form an internal. And so I'm not saying that they're equated. It's not that number one under outer is the same as number one under inner. I'm just saying that if we were to look at the external peace that's provided, it's also then reflecting an internal peace. And so primarily, the peace that this bringer of peace, this prince of peace provides is a covenant of peace, a covenant of abundance or of shalom. This is uh, Ezekiel 37. It says, these people, this is the new covenant, they will not defile themselves anymore with their idols or their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, and I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. And so he is saying that he provides peace because he brings peace in the most important way, that is, peace with God. How about um, eternal peace? Same passage here in Ezekiel. You see everlasting shows up there and forevermore. God's peace will be never-ending. Never-ending abundance is the type of internal peace that he provides. There are also some internal uh, moral pieces. That's a bad way to say that. Uh, the moral peace can be internal in ways. In, so it's, let me try that a different way. The peace can be internal in moral ways. That sounds much better, doesn't it? Got uh, five, three here and one on the next, or two on the next page. Righteousness, tranquility, strength, and then the next two are love and joy, which we'll get to. I'm going to go through these quickly. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other, or they're equated to one another. They're similar to one another. And so this inner peace is a sense of inner righteousness. This is why Jesus could call out in the Sermon on the Mount and say to the people, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those people are kingdom worthy because internally they sense and recognize in here is deep unrighteousness. But what a relief and a joy it is that as believers, when we sense that deep unrighteousness, we can take a step back and go, well, wait a second. I'm not righteous because of the work I've done. I'm righteous because of the work that Christ has done for me. And that provides inner peace. Some of us, we have a hard time running from the things about ourselves that we don't like or don't appreciate. These things that are so discouraging and frustrating to us. That's a lot of my life is not being able to run away from these things that I feel hold me down and I can step back and say, but it's not about me and what I do. It's about Jesus and the work that he has done. Tranquility. In peace I will lie down both and sleep. I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Here's the psalmist who is saying that in this peace that he receives from God, it provides tranquility. He could be on the run. He could be in the midst of a war. He could be in the midst of a battle. And he's saying there are times when he steps back and there's peace and tranquility, inner 
tranquility, and peace because of the work that God has done through Jesus. Strength. May the Lord give strength to His people. May the Lord bless His people with peace. That one's pretty straightforward. Uh, I was trying to think of a good example for this one. If, let's say you went into a battle and uh, everybody that you were fighting against had cats on leashes and you brought a lion. Now, you're not strong. It's the lion that's strong, but you would borrow peace from that lion. Now, let's, let's change the odds. Let's say it wasn't cats. Let's say they were Roman warriors and your side had lions that you could release or jaguars or whatever really large cat you most appreciate or enjoy. Except for cheetahs, I don't know if they would really do all that well, but imagine the strength that you could borrow from those large felines because they would be empowering you and this is the peace that God brings through strength. Love. For thus says the Lord, do not enter the house of mourning or go to lament or grieve for them for I have taken away my peace from this people my steadfast love and mercy, declares the Lord. Now, this is in the negative. God is talking about um, some unfortunate stuff. Jeremiah is, of course, the weeping prophet, and he's not bringing a happy message. But what we see there is that peace is equated with love and mercy. And we sense that, don't we, in our peace or in the shalom that we have, that God's love is so profoundly satisfying and good to us. And finally, joy. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but those who plan peace have joy. Those who plan peace have joy, so their peace is equated with joy as well. Well, what what does that do for us? How do we get peace to us? So here are seven ways peace comes to us. I'm not going to go through these. I'm just going to stick them up there on the screen. I'll give you a moment to write them down as I uh, talk about a, a similar or related idea The peace that God provides, the peace that comes to us through Jesus, is so profound because it targets something within us that we feel always pulling. So again, if the Bible talks about physical realities and equates those physical realities to spiritual realities or uses those physical realities to clarify the spiritual realities, think about all of the pining that the Israelites had done. Let's just walk through, I don't know, three or four examples. When they were in Egypt, they were pining to be free from what they referred to as the yoke of slavery. And then when they had to go out and they had to fend for themselves, they were pining that they could be back underneath the yoke of slavery. And then as they got into the land and they looked around, and they noticed all the people groups around them, they saw that these people groups had kings. And so they were pining for a ruler. And all of these physical, external situations or realities reflect an internal, don't they? And you and I sense this. This is why we often talk about addictive things as those things that are hard for us because we recognize a desire. It's not just the item. It's what the the item provides. So whether it's sugar whether it's an actual drug, whether it's a medication, whether it is um, a physical activity, whether it is relaxation, whether it is, I mean, video games do the same thing. They, they pump into us these endorphins. All of these are betraying an inward spiritual reality. 
That is, we are longing and hungering and desiring something more. It's kind of like that cliche, we have a, I'm sorry, we have a God-shaped hole within us. Maybe some of you don't like it said that way, but that really talks about the reality that is our lives. We're looking for more, constantly looking and wanting and trying to find more. This is the essence of what sin is, and there's peace because God fills in. Where nothing else gives us peace, God can give us peace. So here is the prophet Isaiah, and he is talking about through God, he is ta- or God through him is talking about how he will provide for his people, and he's beckoning to them. And look at how he beckons to them in the physical to talk about the spiritual. He says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. This is how you eat what is good. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. This is the peace that Jesus provides. This is the peace that Luke is showing to Theophilus, is there in him. This is the peace that was promised in the Old Testament when all the prophets were talking about the one who would be this prince of peace. And this is why the angels could say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Because when he pours out his peace on us, this peace that we get internal, external. It goes above and beyond anything that we could ever want or desire. It is the God who made us, giving us what He knows we need and what He created us to have, and that namely is Him. It is Him and nothing more. Let's pray, and then Rob will lead us in communion. God, thank You so much for the peace that we have through Jesus. Thank you that the Old Testament talks of the peace that he provides and that the New Testament talks of the peace that he provides. And thank you that no matter where we are, uh, whatever is going on, whatever we're in the midst of in life, we have peace as something that's available to us. And it's not, if we look back on the days or weeks or months or years behind us, It's not a peace that is not available to us because of what we have done or have not done. It is a peace that is available to us because of what Jesus has done. So God, grant us this peace. I pray for us as a body. I pray some of us would take a look at some of those external means of peace that God provides and see where we could trust you more and trust the peace that you provide. And I pray that we would, as a body, look into the internal peace and that we would find peace in our hearts through Jesus, whether that's the big picture as in coming to know you as Savior or whether that's taking you with us in the midst of a difficult situation or entrusting the work that you have and the sovereign God that you are and having tranquility in the midst of our struggles. 
Thank you for the peace that we have through Jesus. Amen.